Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's episode, I'm joined by Raymond Lydon of the Central Bank of Ireland to discuss the wealth of Irish households. Ray has been poring over the new Household Finance and Consumption Survey, which is one of the primary data sources used to understand Irish household wealth, something which is notoriously difficult to get a handle on. We go through the role of inheritance in household wealth, the role of home ownership, and Ray gives some advice to researchers interested in using the data. As you know, I have a Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash irishecompod. If you enjoy the podcast to the value of a cup of coffee, that's an opportunity to chip in towards costs. Okay, so I'll leave you straight to it. Thanks and hope you enjoy this conversation. We touched on wealth previously, maybe tangentially, but it'd be nice to sort of get into it uh, into, uh, into a bit more detail into what exactly, what's the importance of it. So maybe you could give us the foundation to understand well, why exactly are we concerned about wealth and what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about uh, household wealth? Yeah, sure, Niall. So uh, in the work that we do and in the survey that the CSO has done on our behalf, we define wealth as the current market value of all the assets owned by households, less all the debts. So if you own a home that's worth 100000 and you have a mortgage, 50,000, then your wealth or your net wealth is 50,000. So, but we don't just talk about real assets. So a home is a real asset. Other real assets are things like vehicles and valuables. But what we've tried to get to the bottom of as well for Irish households is their financial assets. So this is things like savings in post offices or bank accounts, but also things like uh, equities or shares households might hold and some information on their pension asset. So putting real and financial assets together, we're basically talking about what uh, in the literature we call non-human wealth. So we're not talking about your human capital. We're not talking about your education or your work experience. Those are very important. And in fact, wealth can help you acquire more education, but that's not what we're measuring here. We're talking about non-human wealth is what it's typically called. So this is, I think, one thing to, to point out to a lot of people. You know, when we talk about how well-off people are, we tend to focus on, on income. But now, 
but income is only part of the story whereas wealth I suppose one thing that we didn't really understand up until now was that what the distribution of wealth was. So this survey gives us a handle on that, I suppose. Yeah, so the the um, you're right. So there's a lot of economists and social scientists have for decades looked at uh, incomes and income distribution and all aspects of in- individual household incomes, but much less so wealth. And, and one of the reasons for that is there's not a lot of information about it. As you say here, this is actually only the third time for Irish households that we've surveyed their wealth. We can talk about the previous surveys later as well. And the reason is it's just really hard to measure it. You know, people don't like to answer questions about their wealth when when they're surveyed. Some people may not know what their wealth is. So one of the challenges we find from when we do the survey is if you ask people what uh, the value of monies in their bank accounts might be, a lot of people just find that very difficult. They may not know at a given point in time. The other thing about wealth is, you know, you'll see in a lot of income data around the world, more and more is being populated with administrative data sources from tax returns. That's just more difficult with wealth because a lot of these admin sources don't exist. So it's a lot more kind of time consuming and resource intensive to go out and ask households about their wealth. That's why you don't see it collected very often. Yeah, and then there's aspects like pension, which isn't immediately obvious to a lot of people that this is part of your wealth. And, you know, most people wouldn't really know what, what their pension is worth, I suppose. And that feeds into your, your comment that, well, we don't understand our wealth, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, well, if, if you don't understand what's in your bank account, you're definitely not going to understand what's in your in your pension, I suppose. Yeah, no, I'm not an expert on pensions, but... When we think about pensions, there's three pillars is typically how people think about it. So the first pillar is often, um, sorry, one of the pillars is the public. So some people call it the old age pension system. So everyone gets that. The other is occupational pensions. So pensions linked to your job. And the third pillar, which we do measure in this survey, we don't measure the other two in the survey yet. The third pillar is what are often called voluntary pensions. So these are pension schemes that people will actively invest into uh, using their incomes as opposed to some as opposed to uh, say occupational pensions where your contribution is taken out every month and your employer makes a contribution as well so actually one of the most interesting results is the increase in individuals contributing to what we see as voluntary pensions here which is quite interesting today when we see in the news that uh, IFAC are calling saying that people will have to work until they're 69 to get their pensions. So I think what we're seeing more and more is Irish households are aware of uh, saving for retirement and investing in their pensions at a fairly early age. But we can talk about that one when we talk about some of the results. I think we need to talk about why do we care about wealth. So, so, so one reason is it's important for understanding how shocks are transmitted through the economy. So if you have a shock to your income, but you also hold some assets that you can draw on, say savings, then you might be able to smooth your spending while you're suffering that negative shock. So this is income smoothing. So wealth is important for that aspect. So it's important for understanding how those sort of shocks are transmitted through the economy. It's important for understanding how households might be exposed to things like interest rate changes. So we know in this survey what sort of debts people have, uh, if they have mortgage debt, is it a fixed rate interest? Is it a variable rate interest? And it's interesting what we see. Interesting. 
upon. But in, in the data, one of the things we're seeing is Irish households increasingly switching to fixed rate mortgage interest products. So a move away from being exposed to these variable interest rates. And again, we can talk, talk about that as we go on. The other reason why we're interested in it is, like I said, well, so we talked about pensions already, but at the central bank for, with our financial stability hat on, we're interested in things like financial fragility. So if uh, you are a household that has a lot of debt, how are you able to cope with repaying those debts if you get an income shock? And again, that's pretty pertinent right now. We're seeing a lot of households who are facing some difficulties as a result of the COVID-19 shock availing of payment breaks. It was upwards of 10% of mortgage households are on payment breaks. So you would be concerned about that group as being what is sometimes referred to as financially fragile. You know, maybe they didn't enter this situation with uh, sufficient savings or assets to see them through a shock. Um, another thing that's pretty interesting in Ireland is the wealth of households that we see is very closely linked, very closely linked to the uh, debate about home ownership. So, when I talk you through some of the results later, what you'll see for Ireland is wealth for, for the most households is the home that they live in. So, owner occupied owner owner occupied property is the primary source of wealth that households hold in Ireland. So there is this intrinsic link between home ownership and wealth in Ireland, which you don't see in every country in Europe, for example, countries like Austria and Germany, where home ownership is much, much lower. You see much more wealth in things like financial assets, savings and stocks and bonds, and also voluntary pension wealth. That's much less the case in Ireland. With this sort of survey, we can understand well inequality in terms of wealth, and that's something that you're able to get a handle on with this data as well. Yeah, again, so uh, Piketty has has put wealth inequality uh, on the agenda once again. Uh, it was off the economics agenda for a very, very long time, partly, I would imagine, because it was hard to measure. But with these new sort of data sets, we are able to measure it again. And uh, inequality matters for, you can think about it for efficiency reasons. You want all kind of members of the population to be able to fulfill their potential. So economists think about that as efficiency, which matters for productivity. There's also fairness arguments around that. It also matters for things like uh, wealth taxation. So we saw in the last crisis, in the great financial crisis, that uh, the expansion of the tax base went into wealth in Ireland for the first time for decades. So we had the uh, local property tax and we still have the local property tax. It is the major kind of form of wealth tax in Ireland. Uh, what's also back on the agenda this time is something like inheritance taxes. So you see in some media reports, people calling for inheritance taxes and a wider wealth tax to fund part of the COVID-19 bill. So wealth, Wealth inequality and taxation of wealth is always on the policy agenda. Right. What's interesting about wealth taxation in Ireland, the SRI did excellent work on this in 2016. It very much matters what base you apply it to. So in the work that the SRI did, what they said was if you apply it to um, people's homes in Ireland, it's actually quite a regressive tax because we have high levels of home ownership at some low levels of income. So what you find is certain households 
end up paying quite a lot of tax as a proportion of their income if it's just a tax about homes. But then you can get into questions about you know, a greater taxation on financial assets as well. This data and what we've collected is very useful for looking into all of those issues. Okay, right. So we'll move on to maybe talking about the, the wealth uh, survey and uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about what the data looks like and how you might, how you went about collecting it and what, uh, if there's researchers interested in applying it, how, what, what, what would they, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so a little bit of background on the survey. So the, the survey is actually formally called the Household Finance and Consumption Survey. So uh, it's a coordinated survey of 21 countries in uh, Europe. So the ECB coordinates the survey. Uh, and in most countries, it's the National Statistical Institute. So in our case, the CSO, who carry out the survey. So there have been three waves of the survey. There was one in 2008-9. Unfortunately, we didn't participate in that first wave because there was quite a lot else going on at that time. Then the second wave was 2012-13, and Ireland participated in that wave. And the third wave was the 2017-18 survey, and we've also participated in that wave. So usually when, when the surveys happen, it takes about 18 months to two years to process the data and produce the results and this is why we're kind of talking about it now in 2020 even though the field work was done in 2018. In the latest waves of the survey it's very detailed in terms of information on incomes as I said wealth real financial assets and debt and some information on consumption but anyone who's worked with consumption data for uh, from things like uh, diary based surveys like um, household budget survey, it's not consumption data like that. It's much more high level, so to speak. In the latest wave, there's just short of 90,000 households that it covers, about 200,000 individuals, so across the 21 countries, that is. And it's representative of just shy of 150 million households in the EU. So the Irish surveys, as I said, were broadly 2013 and 2018, so two really different surveys and what we see is big changes between that period and we're seeing big changes now as well. Uh, the 2013 wave has around five and a half thousand households, 14,000 individuals. 2018 it's roughly the same, uh, slightly less, maybe 5,000 households. And we think when we compare it with some other data that we have from some other admin sources but also published data by the CSO, it's quite good at capturing uh, the very top of the wealth distribution, so this top 1%. We're not sure how well it captures the top 0.1%. Um, and I think it's worth explaining to people why that is. So I said at the beginning, people don't like necessarily to answer certain questions about their wealth, uh, or they may not know. So you get what's called item non-response and, and household non-response. And you know, it's well known in wealth surveys that that sort of non-response becomes more of a problem the higher up the distribution you go. So technically, the way that you address that is you oversample wealthy households. And we do that by sampling from a population based on things like uh, household values in very small areas, uh, income statistics from the census in very small areas. We would target areas that would have high home values and high incomes and oversample in those areas. So this is what I mean by I think it's quite good at capturing the top 1%, but above that, it is quite difficult to know. Um, for people who want to use it, they can contact me directly. 
There is a data set that's um, easily available from the likes of the ECB. And they, as I said, they can get that via myself by contacting the ECB directly. There's also a research microdata file that the CSO produces, and you can apply for that through, through the usual, usual channels. Um, it's very well set up. It's very clean data. And as I said, we're now in our second wave, so there's a lot of data there, and we have two periods to compare. I will say that uh, the two periods we did the survey for, so that's 13 and 18, it wasn't a panel data for, for those periods. So uh, we're moving, hopefully, into a panel data set for our third wave, but the first two waves are not panel data, which is a little bit unfortunate, but it's still very useful data. One thing that struck me there when you mentioned you can capture the top 1% and difficult to capture the top 0.1%, is that it's probably driven by sampling issues and trying to because it's such a small subset of a small subset it's hard to get a you know a representative sample but is there also issues in that the top not at one percent have assets that are even harder to get a good grasp on yeah i think it's both reasons one is it's just you know we're a small country and that would be a small sample a small subsample of a small enough sample uh the other is you know these people may have assets uh all over the world. So, you know, how, how do you quantify the value of those assets? The other thing, I, I think also what I'm trying to say is in countries like the US where they've done comparisons of this sort of survey data with administrative data on um, estate taxes, um, this is how they know whether they capture that top 1%, 0.1% very well. But in the likes of Ireland, we don't have that sort of state tax data to do those comparisons. So this is why I, I say I'm not sure how well it captures that very top 0.1%, but we're pretty confident it captures the 1% quite well. So maybe you could give us some insight into some of the headline statistics that come out of the come out of the data. What struck you as being perhaps the, the big stories that will be of most interest when you're analyzing the data? So, so people are always interested in, well, you know, what is the... Uh, median or average wealth of an Irish household. So I can, I can tell you that. So in 2018, and I should say we're always talking about, generally talking about medians here, because with things like wealth, you can have very long right tails. So we tend not to talk about averages. We're going to talk about medians. So for, for the median Irish household, the, the wealth was just shy of 180,000 euros in 2018. And what's interesting about that, that's up by about 80,000 euros since 2013. So a huge increase within the space of five years. And I can tell you the number one reason for that was the rebound in property prices that occurred during that period. So I think if you look at the CSO property price index, you can see the property prices went up by, I think, something like 85% between 13 and 18. And this drives a lot of the recovery in household wealth for Irish households. In fact, that increase from about 100,000 to 180,000 is the biggest in the euro area by some distance. Yeah. But when we, uh, if you like, uh, make it real by controlling for the impact in house prices, uh, sorry, controlling for the increase in house prices, you see that Ireland looks just like the euro area. So the increases are about the same right across the distribution. So we know it's property values that are driving a lot of Irish wealth, certainly for the median household uh, right now. The other thing, which I think is an important part of the story in recent years, but certainly not as important as the increase in property values, is the decline in debt levels. So 
we know our, our last crisis was all about, not all about, but a lot of it was about over-indebted households. And what we see coming out of that crisis and in the period up to 2018 is household debt levels really declining quite substantially. So this is a big part of um, the increase. Sorry, it's a part of the increase in wealth as well, but probably not. It's dominated by the increase in property values. So we don't see households in 2018 having kind of debt levels above the likes of 200% of their assets or 400% of their income or things like that. It's a much more uh, stable kind of and sustainable debt distribution across households in Ireland. So that's another big story, I think, right. in, in the latest wave. Um, the other thing which is related to the debt and also price changes is negative equity. So you remember in 2008, 9, 10 and onwards, negative equity was really a, a very strong narrative for, for many Irish households, including myself. So uh, a lot of people who would have bought property between, say, 2005 and 2008 found themselves in negative equity when house prices fell by a half, right? But what we see is these households are all taken out of negative equity by the rise in house prices after 2013. So just to give you an idea of the scale of it. So if you took out a loan, say, for a mortgage and bought your property between, say, 2005 and 2008, more than half of that group were in negative equity when we did the last survey in 2013. So one in every two people were in deep negative equity who, who, who were in that buyer cohort. But by 2018, this was way down below 10%. And uh, probably since 2018, certainly before COVID hit, it had declined even more. So we see almost a complete uh, eradication of, of negative equity as a characteristic of Irish households because of the increase in house prices and the paying down debts. So maybe we could just chat about some of those trends for a minute. The one thing that strikes me when we talk about um, the fact that a lot of wealth is tied up in, in household, like house purchase in Ireland, and that makes you know, makes a lot of sense. But uh, so one thing I wonder is that that means we're directing a lot of our, our wealth, a lot of our um, energy into buying a house. And perhaps I wonder, does that skew our other consumption? So you said that compared to maybe other European averages, if you take out the the house component we're, we're, we're broadly in line but i wonder can you see any sort of direction of other consumption that would occur maybe in europe that irish people aren't partaking in because they have to divert all this energy into house house ownership is there anything along those lines what's the cost of this uh, essentially is what i'm, what I'm getting at I, i'm not sure if you can say that irish households are kind of missing out on something because we have this um kind of, uh, be, because, you know, our, our society is set up in a way that promotes home ownership as the primary way of acquiring wealth. I don't, I don't think it's right to say that that means we miss out on something. You know, it's just that the mix of our portfolios and our assets is skewed towards housing. So I think what that brings with it is risks, right, as opposed to um, missing out on consumption. I think what it brings is significantly more risk because if you're concentrated in one type of asset and that asset has a big shock it can be really negative for a large number of households so right that's exactly what happened in in the financial crisis sure. so you you wouldn't have seen 
such big negative effects for so many uh, households in the likes of, for example, Austria, Germany, and probably less so France and Italy, because, you know, there's not such a concentration of uh, assets in homes. The other thing is the concentration in a certain type of debt, right? That's that's the other thing that arises, the flip side of the coin, you know, to, to buy a home, you need a mortgage. So, and again, we saw the problems that get, that this gave rise to in the last financial crisis. So this is why the central bank is so focused on what we call macroprudential policy. So make, trying to introduce rules that ensure that the debts that households take out and the loans that banks give out are sustainable and don't leave large groups of the population exposed to sudden asset price shifts or sudden changes in their income that, that make these debts uh, more difficult to repay, which give rise to the same problems we had before. So I wouldn't put it in terms of missing out on consumption. It's just that sort of level of concentration, which you do see in some other countries, but uh, perhaps not so much in, you know, we, we do stand out if you compare us with Western European countries. That level of concentration brings with it a kind of a concentration of risk that needs to be carefully monitored and, and kind of looked after. And I, I think that's pretty obvious to most people, given, given what happened before. Yeah. I, I think the other the, the, the other thing, though, it, it's not just, a, it's, it's not all a bad story, right? So uh, you talked about um, inequality at the beginning, right? So if we look at the distribution of wealth. Uh, in Ireland, as I said, it is skewed towards higher wealth households. So if we look at some of the statistics from the last, from, from this survey, so the Gini coefficient for wealth in Ireland is about 0.67. So a lot higher than the Gini coefficient we see for income, which is around 0 0.32, 0 0.31, maybe off the top of my head from, from, from the last sill. But that Gini coefficient is a little bit lower than what we see in the rest of the euro area, which is about 69. And the reason why wealth is slightly more equally distributed in Ireland is because of these high rates of home ownership. So you see, uh, in contrast to other countries in Ireland, you see high rates of home ownership pretty much right across the income distribution, probably with the exception of the lowest, maybe 10 or 20% of households. But certainly for the rest of households, the other 80 or 90%, you see pretty high rates of home ownership, which you don't always see in, in other countries. You know, other distribution statistics are things like what's the ratio of, well, let me, let me think of another one. Oh, yeah. So what's the, how much of wealth is owned by the top 1% uh, of households in Ireland? So how much does the top 1% share account for? And in Ireland, it's just shy of 15%, which is a, quite a bit lower than what you see in the rest of Europe, which is about 18%. And it, again, it's this home ownership, um, this concentration of home ownership right across the distribution, which drives a lot of that. I will say it's lower than the US as well. For example, the top 1% share in the US is above 30%. So we're, we're far below that. But if you go way, way back, so the very first wealth survey in Ireland was done in, I think from memory, it's about 1987, and this was done by the ESRI, and back then the top wealth share was, so the top 1% wealth share was, was 10%. So it has gone up quite a bit over time, 
and that's a kind of a global trend that we're seeing and Ireland is part of that global trend but you know you need to think about why that's happened the main part of the story is debt again so to acquire uh, uh, your own uh, owner-occupied property so to buy your own home in Ireland now you actually have to acquire relatively more debt than you would have than in the late 80s. So the the average level of indebtedness of, of your median household, so your kind of typical household, has gone up quite a lot, but it hasn't gone up so much for the very wealthy household. So Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's important to think about debt driving a lot of this as opposed to things like inheritance taxes or intergenerational, they're probably part of it, but it is difficult to tell. The The main story in Ireland is debt. Maybe we could dig into that a bit further, because I think um, just for the layperson, it might be a bit harder to unpick. So compared to the 80s, uh, you have to take out a, a larger, you have to take out a larger loan, essentially, a larger mortgage to, to buy a house, essentially. And that means that the average householder has to take out a greater debt. But if you are more wealthy, you don't have to take on as much of a loan and therefore you're not going to be as indebted. Is that is that correct? That's or? that's it. That's it exactly. Relative to, relative to the late nineteen eighties, the, the increases are bigger for your more average household. Right. Okay. Relative to your to your wealthier household. So debt is a big part of the story. Right. Okay. So the debt hits the average person a bit harder. The the more wealthy person isn't as burdened by this debt and therefore they can accumulate more wealth because they have more money at their disposal i suppose yeah okay yeah yeah that's it exactly Interesting. Okay. um so you asked as well what are the big changes that we've seen or what are the big results in 2018 and you know <laughs> it seems like a constant theme here home ownership but it is worth emphasizing so if you look at other surveys the cso has been doing for the last number of years we're seeing declining rates of home ownership, and we see that in this survey as well. So in in 2018, 69% of households own the home they live in, okay? So that's about 1.27 million households. This is actually down a little bit from what we saw in 2013, which was almost 71% of households um, owning their own home. So home ownership rates are declining in Ireland. But what we see is... um, the type of home ownership is also shifting. So in the latest wave, outright home ownership, so owning a home without a mortgage, is up quite a lot, up five percentage points to nearly 43%. But mortgage home ownership has declined quite significantly over the last between five and 10 years. In in our survey, it is somewhere we, we estimate between 26 and 28% of households own their household, own the home they live in with a mortgage. You know, that is down from in the mid 2000s uh, from around 32% plus. So mortgage home ownership rates have declined right across the age distribution. And again, this this probably isn't a surprise to people who've been following 
kind of the debate about the housing crisis and housing affordability over the last mm. um, three to four years. But it, it does raise an important point when you think that for the average household, most of its wealth is the home they own. So the ability to uh, acquire a home becomes an important way to acquire wealth. And and you know how that can be made, how, how that can happen for a lot of households is very, very difficult and not to crack. And, and we see it has declined. The age of home ownership has also been increasing. You know, in the mid 2000s, I think it was about 31 was the age at which people first bought their home. In the latest data, it's around 33. So again, people are saving for longer to to acquire their home. So the, the, the real question that we want to keep an eye on is whether this um, decline in home ownership is a permanent thing. Uh, that's or you know whether it's a temporary thing, so people are just taking longer to get on the housing ladder. That's something that will only become clearer over time. Yeah, one interesting thing related to that then is you mentioned, you know, a lot of people who would have bought in the mid nineties would be in, would have been in negative equity, and other out of negative ne- negative equity. So during that period, it was a very risky and I imagine um, worrying time for people who were who were in that position. But now, those people who are out of negative equity. And comparing their wealth distribution to maybe those home people who are aspiring homeowners, and it would be interesting to see how that compares. And I suppose as time progresses, uh, you know, what's the lifetime wealth distribution? How does that look? Yeah, I mean that, that that's a that's a really good question, but it's kind of it's something that will only become quite clear after a much longer period of time. It's it's kind of hard to see it in this data, but oh. certainly. Uh, you're right. The people who were maybe, as you put it, just coming out of negative equity in 2018, they would have much lower levels of wealth than maybe, say, their parents' cohort, who would, after owning a home for maybe 10 years plus. So, yeah, so maybe the you're right, a really important question and one that would only really be able to get a handle on after a longer period is how the lifetime wealth of these different cohorts is being affected. But you're right, that's a really important question. Will we talk a bit about financial assets? So financial assets account for about 16% of gross financial assets. So when when we sum up all of the assets that households have and before we take away debt, financial assets account for a substantial minority of, of those assets. So you might expect the largest share of that and the, the one financial assets that pretty much all households have is a bank account or, or a post office account, some sort of savings account. So more than nine out of 10 households would have a savings or a post office account or a deposit account or a current account. Um, but this only captures around one third of the, this, this, sorry, this accounts for around one third of, of financial assets. The other thing I will say is and it's important, it's a slightly technical point, but it is quite hard to measure um, people's wealth that they have in deposits and bank accounts and post office accounts in the survey. What we find is it generally under-records this sort of wealth. So in our survey, for example, these are kind of rough figures, we would capture, say, roughly 30 billion of deposits in, in a broad sense. But we know in the country there's over 100 billion of deposits. So it's underreported by about a third. And there's lots of reasons why this might be the case. So one, we said right at the beginning, 
sometimes people just don't know exactly what their mm. balance is in their current account or deposit account at any point in time. Another uh, pretty common reason that comes up in these sort of surveys is when you ask someone uh, what the balance is in their uh, savings or deposit or current account, they often think of, well, what is it at the end of the month just before I get paid, if you think about it? Uh, so after I get paid, I might have a balance of maybe 500 euros left in my account if I'm lucky, and that's my buffer. But my average balance over the month could be three or four times that level as I you know, spend or consume throughout the month. But most people think of this sort of heuristic, what's my balance at the end of the month? So you tend to find these, this asset in particular is very underreported. But it still accounts for the for the largest share of financial asset wealth. The rest of financial assets is made up. The next biggest share is voluntary pension wealth, and I talked a little bit about this at the beginning. So this is pensions savings that people uh, are actively choosing to invest in, and it could be in different sorts of products, including life insurance products. And we've seen quite a big increase in this in the last few years particularly amongst younger households. So people are appear to be becoming more aware that they need to be saving more for their retirement, uh, which is quite interesting. And again, that's something we'll keep a, a close eye on in our next wave to see whether that trend continues. The other biggest financial assets is business ownership. So the value of businesses that either I own myself or I may have, uh, I own and operate myself, or maybe just businesses I have a share in. So these are up significantly since 2013. And what we think that is, is just reflecting the general recovery in the economy. If you, think, if, you, if you think about it, the two waves, one was at the very trough of the recession and one was you know, after quite a substantial recovery over four or five years. The other thing about financial assets, very different patterns of financial asset ownership across incomes. So the very wealthiest households, either in terms of incomes or actually wealth, are much more diversified into financial assets. So households who are at the very top of the wealth distribution might have half of their wealth in financial assets and half in real assets, much less concentration. So that, that's another important point, diversity, diversification as you move higher up the wealth and the income distributions. Okay, that's interesting because then that mean that would emphasize that the average householder, more of the more, or greater proportion of their wealth is tied up into the real assets, the house, as opposed to maybe financial assets. So there's more risk. They're, they're more exposed to this risk as opposed to maybe. Exactly. But, but there's two important things here. So that's changing. Right. Uh, not terribly fast, but we do see it changing. And one of the things I said is a greater take up of voluntary pensions. The other thing that we see, which is only captured imperfectly in this survey, but the central bank would have uh, administrative data sources on this. We do see greater take up of things like um, exchange traded funds and different types of financial products in the last number of years. There's still a very small share, yeah. but they're a growing share. And that's an important point. So it's, I, I do think that uh, the appetite for uh, having wealth outside of just the home in Ireland is changing, that's, but it's still it's still in the majority home ownership. I would well, that say. that's interesting because in the last few years, I wonder how well that correlates. Maybe it's easier to get ac access to these sort of trading platforms nowadays. Well, with you can do it on your phone, for example, whereas before you had to go to a broker or whatever. Maybe 
there is some correlation there i wonder yeah yeah but uh, you know you wouldn't see you wouldn't be able to extract those correlations from from this sort of sure. data but certainly you would think that access is part of it yeah. the the other one you know we, we shouldn't uh forget you know the interest rate on your uh, more traditional financial assets deposits, for example, was very, very low during this period. So, you know, perhaps that has incentivized people to go and look elsewhere for returns on their financial investments. Yeah. And that could be part of the story too. So, you know, it may be, maybe I, I spoke too soon, maybe this pattern will be reversed if, if you know, interest rates uh, start to rise in the future. It's, it's really, really difficult to tell with the data we have. But this is what's so interesting about, about this data. You can track this over time. You can look at how different characteristics of individuals or households determine yeah. take up or otherwise of these different products. People who are people who are interested in uh, financial literacy, it's not an area I work in myself, but mm. that's something that you can explore uh, with this microdata. So people who are interested in financial literacy should be looking at this. It's important. Another interesting trend is that of business ownership. That's something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought about. I wonder what is, have you any idea of what's driving that trend? Yeah, so we don't really see um, a greater proportion of households who, who have business wealth over time. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty static. It doesn't change a lot. But what we see is the value of that business ownership has gone up quite significantly. And, you know, we think it's related to um, just the recovery in the economy. So uh, your business is more valuable because it's more profitable now, right. as opposed to, you, you really need to think about the two points in time, right? They were very, very different sure. uh, periods. So it's quite likely that anyone who, who had a business or a lot of people who had a business in 2013, and you, know, you can imagine asking the, the home, the household, Oh, you have a, a business. What's it worth? Well, you know, at the moment, maybe it's not worth very little, you know, given what's going on. But you know, that changed quite a lot uh, yeah. between 2013 and 2018. But certainly, the proportion of households doesn't change so much. And I will say that's that's a very small minority of households who have that sort of wealth. It's not not a very common thing, and it tends to be towards the top of the wealth distribution, right. where you see more of that type of wealth. So I, I don't want to give the perception that uh, or give the impression that that uh, ownership of business wealth is a very big share for your typical household so to speak okay. but certainly for households towards the top it is a big factor and uh, you know i said before that uh, you brought up self-employment business wealth so what we actually see i said the percentage of households who have this form of wealth didn't change very much between 13 and 18 it's about a fifth of households at most but what we see is that the median value of this type of wealth more than doubled between the two periods. So it went up from about, this is self-reported now. So the median household conditional having business wealth said that the value of their business wealth in 2013 was 10,000 euros. By 2018, this was over 23,000 euros. So, you know, we attribute that probably to the recovery, the general recovery in the economy. We talk about assets, but one thing, the other aspect of wealth is, is debt and, and the, the, some of the trends around the, the debt uh, statistics. Maybe you could take us through those. In Ireland, about half of households hold some form of debt and half don't, which um, is an interesting statistic in itself. It's a lot lower than, say, the likes of the US, but pretty similar to what we see across Europe. Um, 
it came down quite a lot for some age brackets between the two surveys. Like if we look at people over the age of 50, uh, the likelihood of having debt fell by about 10 percentage points to just over 50 percent between 2013 and 2018. The total debt that households have fell by about 20 billion over the five years. So it fell from about 120 to just over 100 billion. And when we look at the household level, uh, the biggest one obviously is uh, owner-occupier mortgage debt, and that's fallen by about 10,000. So when I talk about debt falling, there's two reasons for this, and the, the two reasons are important. So one is repayment of debt that people would have had coming out of the last crisis. That's been a pattern that we've seen over the last number of years. Uh, people who maybe were just slightly over-leveraged and realized that during the last crisis you know, don't want to have so much debt relative to their income or their assets, paying that down. The other one, which is very, very important, is fewer households taking on mortgage debt. So this is a really big change that we see over the two periods. Yeah, so I think I said it to you earlier, the number of households with a owner-occupier mortgage in 2013 was just shy of 34%. And in our new data, it's somewhere between 26 and 28%. So there's a big fall off in owner-occupier mortgage debt. And this is partly why overall indebtedness of the household sector is falling, as well as repayment of debt. The actual median value of the debts is not terribly different between the two periods. So the median value of a mortgage in 2013 is about 130,000. And in 2018, it's 125,000. Um, we see a small increase in the likelihood of having non-mortgage debts. So this is things like credit cards, um, personal loans, but the numbers there, certainly relative to mortgages, are pretty small. We're talking about five to 6,000 euro debts conditional on having it. Um, it's interesting as well that this fall in mortgage debt is right across the board. So if we look at households under the age of 40, the right across the income distribution, we see lower levels of mortgage indebtedness. So it's not something that's concentrated in towards the bottom of the distribution, but it's right across the income distribution. So mortgage indebtedness is down right across the board. Um, I talked about non-collateralized debt already. So what else can I say about debt that's interesting? But one thing that strikes me um, about that is we have fewer so fewer households taking on mortgage debt but what are the, the those households presuming everything else is equal they have more they have some some what are they doing with their income basically they're not investing it in in in, in a household in a house in a, in a dwelling are they investing it elsewhere or are they just building up cash reserves maybe to to, to invest at a later age or or how is that playing out i wonder so there's, there's a few things going on here, right? So we see households that are not homeowners and don't have mortgage debt, much more likely to say they're saving to become a homeowner. Okay, so that is an important shift that we see. So an increase in saving behavior with a view to buying a home. So I think that goes up by about, um, let me just get you a statistic on that. So saving. Um, yeah, I don't have that figure off the top of my head. I think some, some, something like, yeah, so a lot more households who say are in 
age between 30 and 40 are say they're saving to buy a home mm. versus what we see before. Uh, but we also, I think something that's also important to bear in mind is, you know, rents went up quite significantly between this period. So you might say, well, uh, these people don't, a lot of these people don't have mortgages relative to similar cohorts in the past. So are they saving all that money? Some of them are saving if they can, but you also have to remember that rents rose a lot faster than incomes, which makes it more challenging to save. So uh, it's 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 not a kind of black and white story there. And, and we see that. So some of these households who you might think uh, would have become homeowners if you compare them with earlier years or earlier cohorts do have more savings and some don't. Mm. And, you know, like I say, it's not a simple story of, okay, I'm just saving like crazy and I'm delaying my my purchase. Yeah. Some households do struggle to save. And I think a large part of that is this uh, issue that we see with rents rising a lot faster than income. That's really interesting. Is there a landlord variable in your data set? Because next, the next wave will be an interesting analysis <laughs> <laughs> to carry out. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's funny It's funny you should say that. So that is something we're, we're looking at actually right now, but I don't have the uh, results for you. So watch this space. We do collect some data on uh, who owns, say, buy-to-let property, yeah. uh, what, inc what income they get from that buy-to-let property, but also things like debts relating to that buy-to-let property and the values of those buy-to-let properties. Right. Um, in general, I will say that it's much less prevalent than it was in... Uh, the survey we did in 2013, you know, buy to let uh, as an asset is a lot less attractive to households in 2018 than it was in, in 2013. Uh, and, you know, there, there's still, you know, scars relating to that sector and that sort of investment that we saw even coming into COVID, you know, buy to let uh, mortgage arrears were still very high coming into the current crisis. So it's certainly something... Uh, that's on our radar, if I can put it like that. Sure. And one other, th one other trend there that was interesting was you said across income distribution, the trend seems to be similar. And what, what strikes me when I hear that is that it's all relative. Everybody is 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 saving for a certain household relative to their income, and everybody is, is struggling in that regard. I suppose like if you're if you're if you're on a lower income, you're you're how you're the house you're going for is perhaps different than if you're on a higher income and perhaps then it seems that everybody is facing the similar challenges y yes Maybe. yeah Maybe I, I i i think i i think um i think what what i meant earlier is you know home ownership in ireland is quite prevalent right across the, the income distribution so uh, and and that's not surprising in many ways you know the incentives to become a homeowner are higher Right, the tax system incentivizes it because you you um, you know capital gains on owner occupied property are, are tax free, so you know there's quite a strong incentive there. Um, arguably, kind of security issues around being a renter make owning a lot more attractive as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's no surprise that we see the desire to become a homeowner there right across the income distribution. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, maybe one aspect of inequality again. And it's actually, it's been part of the political debate in the in the program for government. You're probably 
well aware and the listeners will be aware that uh, there was talk again about inheritance taxation uh, while they were discussing this program for government. So the survey does ask some kind of backward looking questions about inheritances. So did, did you get one? What was the value of it? What did you use it for? That sort of thing. So I think some of the patterns in the data would be of interest to people who are working in this area. So will, will I talk about some of the key things that emerge? Sure, yeah, fire ahead. Yeah, whatever. whatever strikes so across the age distribution, so obviously younger households much less likely to receive an inheritance or a gift, and you can think there are there right. are good reasons for that because it's it's a lifetime uh, sort of thing. Um, but when we look at households, say between the ages of forty and say mid sixties, around a quarter of households say they've ever received an inheritance. So, um, I, I would think that's a fairly substantial minority of households, but. When you look across the wealth distribution, if you look at, say, the top 20% of households, this is 40% of households say they've right. received an inheritance. When you look at the top 10% of households, it's closer to two-thirds. Right. So you were talking about intergenerational wealth, yeah. intergenerational issues of inequality. We talked about why we care about that. There is clearly quite a lot of intergenerational Sorry, the data suggests there's quite a lot of intergenerational transfers of wealth in Ireland. Um, if you look at the very bottom of the wealth distribution, um, say the bottom half, somewhere between 10 and 15% of households say they've received an inheritance. Now, some of this, again, is that age effect, right? So, mm -hmm. so that the lifetime, but it's not all an age effect. If we look at uh, across the income distribution, if you look at the top, say 10% of households, nearly 40% say they've received some form of inheritance. So what do you think is, say, what do you think is the median value of an inheritance? If you think a quarter of households uh, say they've received a substantial inheritance. Well, if it's, if, if, um, if it's concentrated in the upper end of the distribution, I'd say maybe 20,000, 20,000 euros. Well, that's that. That, that's a pretty good guess. So again, if you look at the say the twenty sixty bracket, it's around twenty between twenty and thirty thousand euros is, right. is the typical value of an inheritance that people receive, uh, and that's in both both waves actually. But as a percentage of their income, it's again if we look at the say forty to sixty age range, it's between a twenty and forty percent of the income is the value of the inheritance. So not insubstantial sums. Pretty, pretty substantial yeah. sorts of inheritance. What do you think is the most common type? Common type of? Bits of inheritance that people receive, so houses, cash. I say primarily for a um, deposit, a con contribution towards a house deposit. And after that, then houses, a house, yeah, family home sort of thing. Yeah, so two-thirds of people say they receive uh, money as a gift or an inheritance. So it's, it's the predominant type of inheritance that people get. Mm. Uh, after that, you're talking about land. So we think a lot of this relates, there's a large concentration of that when you look at people who are in agricultural occupations. So land is inherited. Sure. And then after, after that, it's, it's housing as a, as a form of inheritance. And it's about one in eight uh, who get inheritance say it's housing. The last thing we looked at when, you know, and I know we've talked a lot about home ownership in, in this podcast, but, you know, when you look at Irish wealth, home ownership is a lot of the story, both on the 
gross asset, but also the debt side. But what's interesting is the what role do inheritance pay play in, in becoming a homeowner? So this is something that we have looked at. So when we look at households under the age of 40, so we don't know who's a first-time buyer. That's it's it's not recorded that way in this data. But if you think that under 40s are mostly first-time buyers, uh, and we look at who received an inheritance around the time that they purchased their first home, mm. uh, what we see in the kind of 2013 to 18 period, it's almost one in five say they received a substantial gift or inheritance around the time they purchased their home. So again, pretty substantial. What that was in the earlier period, so if we look at the period 2008 to 13, because remember we've got two waves of the survey, it's just over 10% of households. So it seems that for in more recent years, inheritances are much more correlated with becoming a homeowner than they were in earlier years, which I think is an, an interesting change and something that could be dug into a lot more, both with this data, but also building on the results here. It's funny that the median value of the inheritance is about the same in both periods. It's between 20 and 25,000. So yeah. roughly between a fifth, a fifth of household income of those who became homeowners or about, a, sorry, a third of household income or about a fifth of the uh, value of the property. So uh, you said, it, you know, what was the main inheritance deposits in buying a home? So 20% of the value of your home. There you go. This is just a first pass through the data, I suppose, and getting a first a first understanding of what exactly is going on. But one question that I would find very interesting is understanding how... So understanding who, the distribution of who's getting these inheritances, who's getting this contribution towards their houses, what the how that's correlated with perhaps different socioeconomic uh, outcome, or drivers or whatever, and the ge geographic spread and how that trying to pinpoint who and where this is is, is targeting and wh how that affects maybe the housing market then and wh how that plays into like what's the role of these inheritances in the, the current uh, housing market well I, I i think you're asking all the right questions you know if you, if you think about the policy challenges here right so um you cannot answer all of those with with this data what I will say is that, that the survey, if you like, allows you to scratch the surface and maybe do a little bit more. But the sort of questions that you're asking there around um, maybe the distribution and the distributional consequences, I think to really get at that, you would need a probably a, a bigger sample or even the population, so to speak. So, mm. you know, we need to think about if... if there are economists or social scientists out there who are very interested in this area. By all means, you can start by looking at our household finance and consumption survey. But I think to really get to the bottom of it, you you may need to look at other sources, potentially administrative data sources. Again, I'm not an expert on the admin data in this area, but it seems to me like some of the questions that you're asking maybe about regional um, sure. things, about incomes, should be we should be able to start answering those with the admin data sources that are available you know in the state to the likes of the CSO and the revenue commissioners you know these are important questions and you know what 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 the survey does and some of the stats that I put out there like I said they 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 do make you think well what are the implications of all of this in terms of inequality distributions 
regions and a lot a lot more questions but i will say you won't get to the bottom of all of those with this sure what what questions would be on if you had infinite time and could play around with this data what would be top of your priority list when it comes to uh, understanding what's going on right now uh, inheritances are not uh, wouldn't be at the top of my list. So right now, it's the impact of the current crisis that's that's really uh, the the kind of policy challenge, certainly for me, and also in the central bank. So understanding how um, individuals in our 2018 survey are being affected by this current shock in terms of incomes. So that 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 would be number one. And given those income shocks. How does that affect things like the sustainability of their debts and their ability to uh, uh, consume in ways that they may have consumed before having the income shock? Um, How does it affect things like their wage growth over the rest of their lifetimes? So you're looking for things like scarring effects Mm -hmm. in in the data and and then what are the policy options for addressing that? So that, that would be right at the top of my list. Certainly, probably not in, in, you know, getting to the bottom of inheritances and issues around intergenerational inequality right now. Uh, your listeners might be interested to hear that we're just going into the field with our 2020 wave. So the CSO have done an amazing job. They've um, put together a new questionnaire to go out into the field between now and the rest of the year, where we'll be doing mostly telephone as opposed to face-to-face interviews with... Um, hopefully the same sort of sample. So we're aiming for around 5,000 households. And what we're going to do this time is try and get a significant panel element. So we'll be able to track um, how households have been affected by uh, the COVID shock. So that's going to be very important. And, you know, we'll hopefully get results from that field work uh, early next year, which will be helpful for thinking about policy options and formation of policy, but also learning how the shock affected people which would be important sure. in hindsight as well. So that's that's certainly the priority for us right now. Is there anything that comes out of this data that would perhaps inform a debate around income versus wealth-based taxes going forward? Considering we're, we're coming into another recession and perhaps we need to widen the tax base. So. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, you know, I think if you're thinking about uh, tax policy, right, uh, then, you know, taxing wealth in Ireland, if you're, if you want to get, if, if you're casting your net as, if you want to cast your net as wide as you can, you are looking at property, mm. right? Uh, but it is worth bearing in mind, like I said at the beginning, that whilst a, a large share of households, I think I said uh, almost 70%, do own their own property, what you see is quite a lot of property ownership low down the income distribution as well. So you need to think about exemptions and affordability criteria to, to pay those sort of taxes if property tax is one way of thinking about widening the tax base. Um, I mean, it is interesting that uh, the, the local property tax, which went, you know, since it's been introduced, I think the uh, tendency every year was to reduce it right up to the limits for many uh, councils. Uh, and you see many um, politicians as well object to this sort of tax. But really, it is the primary place where you see most of 
Irish households wealth. Mm. So if you're talking about taxing wealth, then you cannot avoid talking about taxing property. You could think about taxing financial assets as well, but in terms of getting the best, the biggest return from taxing wealth, property is probably the main asset you're talking about. And also, given what we've discussed, where you know people are are are, are like a lot of people maybe in the middle of the distribution are exposed to a risky that all their wealth is tied up in property if you tax say financial assets you're you're maybe incentivizing people to to put more of their wealth into the risky uh, uh, risky option so maybe it has a side effect there yeah yeah maybe i mean we're, we're certainly at the bank we're well aware of those sort of side effects i mean that's that's been uh, the push towards macro prudential regulation it's about uh managing mitigating and minimizing those risks we've talked a lot i think maybe we can draw or draw to a close uh, all right cool i'll talk to you later thanks a million thanks man. all the best cheers bye-bye bye-bye so my thanks again to ray for bringing us through the new data on irish wealth if you enjoyed this please check out the archive if you want to hear more please consider supporting the podcast through a five-star review on apple itunes or becoming a patron on patreon.com forward slash irish econ pod